Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscribers on Patreon, Sarah, Michael and Rose, for their support and all my other Patreon supporters. If you would like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Mike on the Podium and you'll find many ways to subscribe, extra bonus material and a whole new series of interviews to enjoy, all for the price of a pint of beer once a month. You can also support the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help the show reach a bigger audience and will be greatly appreciated by me. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who divides his time between conducting, teaching, commissioning new works and being one of the world's preeminent oboe soloists. It's a great pleasure to welcome Nicholas Daniel. Nick, a real pleasure to talk to you today. So lovely to talk to you too, thanks for having me. Not a problem. Uh, I know you've been busy in the last couple of weeks during lockdown because you've played a Wigmore Hall recital. Other than yes. that, how's it been for you? Um, very mixed. Um, of course, it's just a, a blessing, the lack of travelling and the time to just to be at home and to, to do all those things you sort of thought might have to wait till you retired, like <laughs> learning to cook a bit better and... Mm. Um, you know, a bit of time in the garden and, and things. But the, I think that the stress of the situation has been exhausting. Mm. And to start with, the shock is exhausting. The, the, the worry about, particularly as a wind player as well, about catching it. Mm. I spoke to a 24-year-old oboist yesterday who caught it two months ago, and she is still building her lungs back up with various different devices because they were so badly affected. That was just a whole series of shocks, mm. including being at home being a shock, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my, cat, my cats kept looking at me as if to say, mm, it's time, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are you doing happening. here? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And mm. that bizarrely gorgeous weather we had in April as well, it was also very strange. And then, um, and, but I found it extremely emotional. I couldn't, I couldn't play the oboe at all to start with. I just, Every time I tried to play, I just ended up being very emotional. So very, very kindly, my husband bought me a beautiful piano, um, a digital piano, which is done by Beckstein and, and um, Casio, if you can believe yeah. it. And it's fabulous. And so when we were having, um, I mean, I have a little walled garden and I could open the doors at the back where the piano is. And if people were sort of standing and, 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 uh, there were times when the community, little community I live in, were wanting to do things like celebrate the NHS or VE Day, and I could actually play something on the piano that they could hear. So that was really nice. And I just played, I couldn't, I couldn't cope with Beethoven. I couldn't cope to start with with Brahms. So I stuck to Mozart was, I don't know why, it's just so clean and clear, isn't it? Mm. Um, and 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 Bach are trying to learn some fugues. Oh my goodness, how do they do it? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It's just like, I mean, I'm lucky to play the piano well, but I think I'm sorry. The individuality of each different half of each hand just just blows my mind. So I've tried to learn one fugue really well, and I'm not there yet. But um, so it's been, I would say it's been very mixed. And then, of course, I got the message that the Wigmore wanted me to play. And, <clears throat> and that was like, OK, well, you know, better find my oboe. <laughs> <laughs> sort some reads out. Yeah, well, I, I know... 
to not to make the mistake of leaving the instrument for a week or so without mm. a good read in the box. Also, all the time this has been going on, since April, I've been teaching my class in Germany weekly as well. There's nine students every week, and it's it's been a very, very stabilising factor, I would say. We've had mm. some great some great guests come, which has been really, really wonderful. So then actually building towards that Wigmore concert was was a real process. And I was reminded, actually, I was reminded of when when I was um, working on Sostakovich 14 for the first time, and I was going to conduct it with the Cambridge University Chamber Orchestra. And um, the thing about when you work with QCO or any of the Cums orchestras, as I'm sure you perhaps have done, is that when you walk into the room, you kind of smell the intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> so hmm. it, the, so you have to really, and there are probably there are students of Russian literature and poet and doing English and doing poet, studying poetry. So you really need to be on top of the top of the text going hmm. in there. But then my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer, having previously survived laryngeal cancer, um, and he was t- uh, diagnosed with um, with lung cancer. And it was it was inoperable, and that was exactly at that time. And so, I just couldn't imagine how I would ever be able to conduct Shostakovich fourteen with its whole text, with yeah, all that exactly. meaning, and just simply not broke down. So I I went through a process, and I sort of asked myself, how am I going to do this? And and I just thought, well, I've just got to go back to the piano, and I've got to play it all. I've got to go in and live deeply, live with the text with this new knowledge about dad's illness and with the sounds and really really think about it and actually that stood me in good stead because I it's it's basically about becoming emotionally used to the music Mm. I mean as starting off as an oboist and then going into conducting later one of the things about it is that you're suddenly faced with these overwhelming masterpieces very few of which are exist in the same in the same greatness in the oboe repertoire. Mm. Certainly not in the past until the twentieth century. Well, I mean that that's the struggle we all have, isn't it, with performing music? Is that sometimes um, the emotion in the music can ha- can come at the worst point um, of your life? Yeah. You just think, you know, um, I, yeah. mean, I, I know at least yeah. two people in the answer to what is the hardest work you've ever conducted, which of course comes much later, have given for emotional reasons, music that came just came at the wrong point in their life. Um, and yeah, I suppose you, you have to work your way through it in a way that, you know, you can deal with it, we also be slightly detached from it. I don't know, I mean. Well, that's the thing, that's, it's, it's about being familiar enough with it that mm. you can be slightly detached from it. And that's one of the challenges I've had as a conductor is to be detached enough. Mm. I mean, I remember the first time I conducted any kind of operatic anything it was a was mozart zaida mm. and um i was very lucky to do it in finland in the festival and i just i i could not believe how i felt so burned by the music and i mm. just thought I've got, I've got to try and get over this feeling that it's burning me that it's like it's gold it's like i'm actually handling molten gold the whole thing was a quite surreal experience actually but i mean it's an amazing piece but um it's a it's a slightly mixed piece but some glorious music in it (laughs) let's go right back and find out first of all what was first was it the piano or was it the oboe because you've mentioned that you you play both obviously what came first and and were you a musical family um 
not a musical family. My father, well, to start with, he sold cars mm. and then he became a prison officer um, at Winchester Prison. And my mother um, did old ladies' feet. Uh, she's a geriatric podiatrist. I think that's the glamorous way of, of saying it. But she basically did old ladies' feet. Um, and no, there was there was no music in the family at all. I, re I remember most strongly that we had one album of the Rolling Stones and one of the Beatles albums, and that was that was actually all the music we had until my dad came home one day with an eight-track tape recorder. And eight-track, if people don't know, and never I've never seen one since actually was a uh, play in one direction only tape. Mm. And then when it got to the end, it would rewind. Um, so you'd have to sit and listen to everything. But it had on it Ronald Binge's Elizabethan Serenade. Well, that's a piece from the past. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But Ronald Binge is a very fine composer. Actually. Yes. Very, yeah. good, very good film composer. Um, and then it had, it had a movement of Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. And... I lay on the floor next to this machine and I listened to that over, I mean, until, until it just broke, mm. it just, you know, it, and, the, and I, then I cried. And then my parents allowed me to spend pocket money on a, on a recording of Mozart. This is before I even played the oboe, Mozart clarinet quintet and the oboe quartet. Mm. But the thing was that there was um, the, the real beginning of music for me was, was church because my parents were churchgoers, Sunday churchgoers. Um, and and I and I started. I hated it so much. I said, "Can I sing in the choir?" So we were living in in um, near High Wycombe at the time. So my first choir was, I think it was in Radnage or somewhere like that. Um, and then we moved to Hitchin, and Hitchin has an extremely beautiful parish church, St Mary's. And at that time, it had a really very fine choir. And I'd started the piano because that seemed to go. Well, I was given the choice between horse riding and, and the piano, and I'm a bit scared of horses being so big. <laughs> so am I. Why would I, I, I yeah. want to ride on something with a mind of its own? I don't know. I, no, <laughs> exactly. I've always had horrible experiences with horse riding and have been in deep pain afterwards. But anyway, so I took up, did the piano. I found it really hard to start with. But, um, but then, actually, my singing voice got quite good, and my mum started, as she seemed to be as I as I went through my childhood to be sort of a bit of an architect of what I would do and where I would go and where I would do it without coercing me at all actually but she sort of said well look um, your cousin Charles is at King's College Cambridge why don't we send you to King's College Cambridge because you can get a scholarship and blah 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 and dad was like looking at his wallet and going oh I don't think so really <laughs> and um, uh, anyway so I went I went to audition for King's and didn't get in because it was a it was a very abnormal style of, of academic test, including verbal reasoning and things, so I didn't understand mm. it. But then I went to Salisbury and I got into Salisbury uh, and I, was, I had the most wonderful and deeply profound, profoundly stirring um, musical experience, as strong as anything I've ever experienced as a chorister of Salisbury Cathedral, mm. even though boarding there at that time was absolutely horrendous and I did not want to be away from home the music made it worth me being away from home yeah. um, and when I was there I, I took up the oboe I was very lucky to have a great oboe teacher Irene Pragnall who who was at one stage all the oboes in the NYO were her pupils and she's just she's still she's still alive she's glamorous um, fabulous like Patsy from Ab Fab beehive <laughs> gin queen um, mm. but the most wonderfully encouraging teacher 
and and then I was very lucky after that, after a period of um, of chopping and changing a bit, to go to George Caird as as my uh, oboe teacher, and he also uh, was incredibly encouraging, but also just had a way of making you realize what was needed without making you feel small you know george don't you know george uh, yeah he was principal at the birmingham conservatoire um i thought and, i thought that might be the way yeah I, I i think we worked together in my capacity as a violin teacher for some time and then yeah maybe i did some conducting when he was still the boss there i'm sure remember. you did yeah i'm sure you did but he he i remember him talking about conducting as well and so he took me all the way through to the time when I won Young Musician of the Year. I mean, my parents were so unmusical that they didn't even come to the final of Young Musician. <laughs> they didn't really understand it. I mean, they, they'd seen it on the telly. They knew that I was going to be on the telly, but mm. they, didn't, they didn't really know. So in, in the footage of it, if you can see that the BBC used, there's Geordie standing up. So that's, <laughs> he, was, he was my support there. Mm. Um, yeah. And then how I started conducting was, well, sort of roll on later. I, I was very drawn to the idea of it, mm. but I kept rejecting the idea of doing it because I saw, I saw so many um, instrumentalists and of course singers now as well, um, who, would, who would go to it. Um, and it looked greedy. It looked um, yeah, yeah. that they, they were dissatisfied. They seemed to have incredible careers. Why did they need to conduct as well? So I was extremely resistant with myself to mm. doing it. And then um, actually my wife at the time, Joy Farrell, the clarinetist, uh, she w um, had been asked to record the Mozart clarinet concerto and the quintet actually. And I said, well, presumably you'll direct it yourself. And she said, no, no, I want a conductor. I said, okay, so who do you want? She said, well, would you do it? And I was like, oh okay so it really it really was it came from her and mm. and and it was she just had a, she always said that she had an instinct um that that i would be good at it um and i'm i mean it was it was a revelation if i'm honest to stand in front of the divertimenti orchestra at the time with great paul barrett leading um and some fantastic musicians playing in the winds and to to feel the wind under my wings in that way. I mean, mm. I, I, I actually, we're in Craxton Studios and I've never forgotten that feeling of, of the sound being part of what I was doing physically without making the sound. Because it's, it's um, extraordinarily different, particularly to the oboe, which is so much, the vibration is part of what you do. Um, and also not facing the audience is a very mm. strange thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a simple thing to say, but, um, learning to think of myself as a unit with with the the orchestra uh just was a great thing to to be able to do and so at times i've still felt that i'm resisting wanting to push it and partly because i i see the game i actually dislike it um and and i i don't know i i think maybe in the end i think perhaps it'll just take a bit more time because also when you when you're so in particularly in this country when I'm so connected as with the oboe yes. um, and yeah. still very 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 active and still doing uh, you know commissioning a lot of music and and really wanting to do that it's hard for people to 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 I mean I think in this country they're a bit suspicious of polymaths in some ways <laughs> um, so I think what I'm really happy about is that 
I do have the chance to do some great work. Um, people do talk about me as a conductor and I mean, as an oboist as well as a conductor mm. and that it's not something that's going away, but it's definitely not something that I feel comfortable being aggressively ambitious about. That's, that's interesting. Going back on a point you made about not wanting to look greedy. Mm. You know, that's, that's an interesting point you know, as an ex-orchestral player. I would often see, or we would often see, soloists stand up and conduct, and and maybe it was because a lot of them weren't very good conductors. But you you would therefore cynically put them in a bracket of, well, they're either being greedy um, or they're trying to get themselves positioned so that when their career as a soloist stops, they've got something to carry on working. Do you, do you know what I mean? That, yes. that sort of, which is yes. different from being greedy, and and it's very easy to be that cynically. No, I, it's very interesting. And, and of course, one of the things I did when I was getting going was I took on the musical directorship of the Leicester Symphony Orchestra. Mm. And the Leicester Symphony Orchestra is, is one of Leicester's two very fine amateur orchestras. Um, one, and one is the Bardi, which is very good too. And they've got the great benefit of De Montfort Hall for their concerts. Mm. And so the Leicester was started by Sir Malcolm Sargent. And we would have a lot of rehearsals uh, for uh, Sunday evenings and so I did my very best to actually be available for as many of them as I possibly could and and committed to it and then we would do admittedly fairly hair-raising performances <laughs> of some pretty big stuff. The most um, powerful experience of them all I think was when we did Gerontius um, and that was really that was the biggest thing i'd ever done at that time that was just wonderful mm. um with the leicester leicester i think the leicester philharmonic choir absolutely superb i mean it really was and we had some very good soloists as well and actually you know how garontius is is slightly unbalanced in terms of the length of both halves yes well because the first half is is about half an hour and the second half is about 45 i think maybe a bit more um well i i actually did a um there's a most exquisite Elgar miniature called Soliloquy, which he wrote at the very end of his life for Leon Goosens. And um, so to start the concert, I actually played the Elgar Soliloquy, directing it from the oboe, and then turned round and we did a Richard Strauss song, Befreit, mm. which is, in a way, it's the exactly the same picture as the opening of Gerontius, because the man is... Uh, is dying and she's saying goodbye to him and it's the voices of people the voices of his, the voice of the of the dying man's wife talking about the children and the and the the four walls we built together and then we went into and we went into Garantius and actually it was a really it's a really and I had um Kate King Catherine King sing that Strauss song too which was a bit quite high for her but she did it wonderfully as well as singing the angel um, and so that was that was quite an interesting way to present Gerontius. <laughs> Gave me extra work. But Leicester Symphony Orchestra was just such a fantastic thing to do because we did we did big programs. I was able to invite good soloists and and we did a, actually quite a lot of new music as well, um, as much as I could get away with pushing them to do. <laughs> and we went on tour, and I discovered just how much amateur orchestras drink when they're away on tour. <laughs> So 
you you talked about winning the Young Musician of the Year, uh, and yes. then you're out into an oboe career, which is incredibly busy. Uh, I'm going to come to commissioning and conductors in a minute. But during that time and, and before you started conducting, did you have any mm. conducting lessons or were you just taking things from the people you stood next to as a soloist? Okay, so it's, it's a really good point. Um, I, well, I wasn't really considering conducting until oh. Joy asked me, which was probably 10 years after you're a musician. Mm. So I was probably 20, in my late 20s. And I realised that I'd been watching and learning. Mm. But then after that, and actually until comparatively recently, I've been taking time out to follow certain conductors, to go and watch them rehearse. Yeah. So it started with, in a very small way with Charles McCarris. Um, and then I was following um, Maris Janssons for a while, mm. and he was very kind. And I would just take the scores of whatever he was conducting. It was in Berlin and in London. And then um, before he went to Amsterdam, I mean, I learned so much from him in that way, but, and particularly about, cause he was at that time he was having some pain in his thumb. So he was sometimes conducting with a baton and sometimes not. Mm. And actually, if you look at different eras of, of videos of, of Maris conducting, it's fascinating to see how, he, how his stick hold has changed. Mm. And he adapted to his own physical needs. Um, fa really fascinating. And then I was in a small way also watching and following Simon Rattle yeah. because that is just um, fascinating. I mean, how he rehearses is incredibly different to how he conducts on stage. I mean, when he was with Berlin, you know, if you're watching him do a Bruckner symphony, it's as though he's, he's, it's a seance going on and he's holding his hands over the crystal ball sort of <laughs> and it's just the most extraordinary thing there's, there's very little actual conducting going on but then i saw him do the canyon aux étoiles mm. in london and um, and i was able to sit in some of the rehearsals and the thing is that it was it was extraordinary to watch and to to experience him again conducting with faultlessly uh with but really technically, because it's what was needed for that piece. Well, that's the interesting thing about, about Simon. In Birmingham, you know, amount of times you would hear players say, why is he conducting so unclearly? When it, We know he can conduct really clearly, you know, when he does things like yeah. Messiaen or Turnage or something brand new. Yeah. I would sit there thinking, well, I'm not complaining because I find it interesting. Why is he doing that? And I would sit there and work it out for myself that, you know, yeah. actually giving well, a, a crystal clear beat in the middle of a Brooklyn Symphony isn't necessarily the, you won't get the sound <laughs> that you want. Well, um, Todd, Todd Handley would describe that as an act of vandalism, I think, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Todd Handley was, he was fascinating because if he, if he felt that everybody was, was playing too slack and away from the beat, mm. he would do something which made, he told me this himself, he would, he would do something which made them play exactly with him. Mm. And then it would sound absolutely terrible. <laughs> and then he'd say, why don't you just relax on the beat a bit? And then mm. it would actually find a kind of middle distance. Like he was absolutely fascinating person to work. I was very lucky to do some recordings with him and they were, they were an absolute lesson in themselves, I have to say. Mm. Um, I mean, he was a terrifically great accompanist. I tell you another another conductor that I I felt was a most wonderful accompanist was Richard Hickox. Oh really? Because yeah. yes, oh goodness. I mean, we did so many Strauss concertos together and Vaughan Williams. We did both of them at the Proms. My Proms debut was with him, and he. You always felt that however much space you wanted to take, 
there was always more and he would always allow you that space. I think it's because yeah. he, in the end, he did such a lot of work with singers and he was really a vocal conductor, I think. Yeah. Um, his, he was at his, at his absolute best when he was accompanying us. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is that I haven't studied formally, but I have worked technically to be, well, I think I'm, clear but I think it's to be clear in the right way I think mm. is, is the uh, is the ideal um so following Jansons and to a small extent Charlie McCarris and and just be having the great joy of being able to watch Simon Rattle um this was comparatively recently with Simon and I think it was when I was doing Sibelius 5 for the first time mm. and I listened to uh, probably you're probably playing on this recording um, the CBSO's recording of, of it when he was music director there. Oh gosh, it's it's just remarkable because the organic way that the orchestra does that accelerando in the first movement. Mm. And so I, I just wrote to him. I said, now look, I really, really, really would love to come and watch what you're doing and and, and see. And I, said, I don't need much of your time at all. I mean, if you've got time for a coffee, that'd be lovely. I'd love to buy you a drink. I asked Simon about how he did that um that accelerando in that way i wanted to know and so he just said oh well that was all about gamelan i said <laughs> well what do you mean he said well i went to i went to bali to study gamelan for i took a small sabbatical and went for i think he said two or three months mm. and he said that after about two and a half months he asked somebody near him he said how is it you're doing all these gradual accelerandos and ritardandos so together mm. and and the guy said I, I thought you were supposed to be some kind of famous musician <laughs> <laughs> and then Simon said well you, um, uh, you know in this lovely way and then um, he said well see that five-year-old girl over there just watch her right hand and she was rotating like in a clock fashion um, mm. slowly to show when they would accelerate or, or when they would get slow and Simon had, hadn't spotted it so I think what he did was exactly what you just described, which was he allowed, because of the trust he'd built up with that orchestra, he allowed there to be a sort of listening, um, a, a gently directed listening accelerando mm. from, from an orchestra that played with each other all the time in that way. And yeah. I found that, um, I, I mean, when I came to do it, I found that very hard <laughs> to it's do in that way. It's extremely tough. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's tough. It, that first movement is exhausting, actually. I mean, for that reason, it's tough to rehearse. First of all, but um, depending on the level your play your your players are with, I mean, even when yeah. you know, if you get, I've done it with amateurs, I've done it at conservatoire level, and I've done it with the professional level. Mm. And you know, with pros, often they've got their own idea of how fast they should be at a certain point. Yes, and they're not yes. really trusting each other or you um and if you go all the way back down to the bassist level they want you to give everything which means that they're always reacting to your beat it's got to be like one of these time trials i do with classic cars where you know you you've got to work out your average speed to get to the next checkpoint at exactly the right time um and so you're always right. projecting the performance forwards by 20 30 50 100 bars to work out how fast you've got to be in it yeah it's tough um i think seven's harder because yeah, with seven, it happens three or four times. And if you get it, get any of the relations wrong, you've had it. Yes, I think Ollie used to call it the gearing of it. Um, mm. Ollie Nelson used to say it was the gearing was it is, and it's the same with with Elliot Carter. If you get any of the gearing off, 
you get to the wrong speed at the right time <laughs> or the right <laughs> speed at the wrong time. Yes. Um, now, you've, you've mentioned Elliot Carter and there's a subject I'd love to bring up with you, mainly because of your oboe career, but I want to bring this forward. To, it's something that I think more conductors should do and maybe will do in the future. You have commissioned hundreds of works for the oboe from solo oboe up to concertos with dozens of composers. Yeah. How do you decide on a composer? Um, how much running time do they get? Uh, I, I, what I'm fascinated to know because I think more conductors should be listening to contemporary composers and thinking, I'd love you to write me a piece for chamber orchestra with double winds, two horns, two trumpets and tips, or mm. whatever it might be. Mm. Um, but I think as somebody who's, who's obviously been through this process so often, yeah. it'd be fascinating yeah. to hear. What, how, how do you decide? How does it work? Uh, nothing could be more important. I mean, the, the first thing is that for, obviously for the oboe, mm. it was crucial for me to start building a repertoire, not just for myself, but a legacy repertoire. Yes. You've got, I mean, if you look at the, at the great soloists of the past, uh, you've got Goosens, who did, who did play a lot of new pieces. Uh, he didn't actually commission any of them. They, they just came because he was a sort of legendary figure. Yes, yeah, yeah. Then yeah. you've got Holliger, and Holliger did an enormous, I mean, just mind-blowing amount, including composing, mm. but with a very specific kind of take in terms of his choice of composers. So right. very much Central European post-war, but including composers such as Lutosławski, Schnitka, Takamitsu, even Richard Rodney Benham wrote, wrote him a great concerto, actually. Mm. So it wasn't, it's not, a, it's not a completely closed story to me, but the kind of composers that allow me to tell a story, which is one of the things that I think I do well with the instrument, mm. that needed to be done again. And, and my teacher, Janet Craxton, was a founder member of the London Sinfonietta and had commissioned a lot of pieces actually including um, Michael Barclay's oboe concerto which I've recorded twice as a matter of fact um, and um, Lutosławski wrote an oboe and piano piece for her and many oboe quartets so she was someone and in every kind of musical thing I do I would say she's very deeply um, inside my DNA somewhere because her whole way of approaching music was that the composer comes first. And that is when you're, whether you're working on Telemann or Lutosławski or mm. whatever. And one time she was teaching me and we were, we were doing something together afterwards with the, with the class from the academy. And she, this composer um, suddenly pop, popped his head around the door of the studio. And she said, oh, Paul, I'm not quite finished yet. Why don't you go downstairs and work with Nick? And mm. because this was after I'd won the musician and it was Paul Reed the composer who later became a very successful composer of ballets. The Royal Ballet did, I think, two of his scores. And he was with the flute player, Philippa Davis, who was, who was a friend of mine. And he'd written a, a piece of solo oboe and I went and tried it through with him. And I've never forgotten that it was Janet who said, you go and try it through with Nick. He'll, he'll, he'll be very supportive. And, and this excitement of working on a piece with the composer who'd, who'd written it was just mm. so unbelievably visceral and when there are so many there's so much archaeology required in performing works from the baroque the classical the romantic periods i mean even early 20th century that we yeah. you have to have all these different styles i mean now it's more crucial than ever 
that we're style appropriate in what we do on an instrument if you're playing only modern oboe that is is like the difference between driving a bugatti or a 1951 land rover um <laughs> so janet was really essential in that but yes the process is is wonderful I, what i tend to do is i keep my ear very close to the ground and i identify composers that i think are interesting so i'm always listening and looking and taking advice from friends and seeing who's around asking for scores from from um, music publishers and sometimes i'll just it's like a almost like an osmosis style getting to know somebody mm. but i make it my business to become their friend because i know that it's a lonely business and that that, that they often look for support and friendship companionship because of that i've I've really got great friends who are composers and um, I, I can't say they're all easy people. The, the ones I'm friends with are comparatively easy to get along with, but there's often a very intense relationship between a composer and, and, and then gradually I'll say, you know, it would be fantastic if you could write me something small. Maybe I'll start off with a, with an occasional piece and, mm. and almost always, unless they've offered, I'll almost always pay them very often from my own money actually um and then it will be gradually working on larger scale pieces i mean it was i'll give you the example of john woolrich yeah. um john i think is, is one of our really great composers and he'd written some a few little oboe pieces and then he then he wrote something which i, I commissioned for for cheltenham festival which was a, a an oboe and piano piece based on paul clay paintings and then I always said to him, you know, I have a feeling there's a big concerto in you for oboe. Mm. He said, yes, it's something I'd love to do. And, and then actually it was incredible how his then, um, uh, the brother of his partner was Nicholas Kenyon and Nick Kenyon commissioned the concerto for the proms. Mm. And there were all sorts of stars lining up. And that, um, it, that concerto is, is one of the most remarkable pieces that anybody's written for me it is it is astounding and we were talking earlier about getting emotionally used to things quickly i mean when you're with a professional orchestra this was the bbc symphony orchestra the premier um the rehearsals there were two days of rehearsals and the climax of that piece and it, it's got an enormous orchestra mm. it's got a triple woodwind a huge brass section i think there's five percussionists plus timpani all playing Woolrich percussion as it's called now, um, post-industrial percussion instruments, which are things like sawn off scaffold feet, oxygen cylinders. There was a lion roar, Verdi bass drum, tam-tam, um, mm. um, and various different tin cans and things, all of which would, any of which would drown an oboe. Um, but there's a balance he made between the oboe on the stage and the instruments behind them. Um, he helped by having three oboes and a soprano saxophone stand with the oboe on the stage sometimes boosting the sound sometimes fighting with the oboe um so it was very it was a very theatrical piece the climax of that piece is a sort of ceremonial um grieving it's in about four or five repetitions of the same shape and each time it gets slightly louder and there's a the end of before the thing repeats there's a big crescendo on on sort of industrial percussion and a bass drum and then a boom as it starts again. I mean, oh, goodness me. I mean, I, I stood there so grateful that I didn't have to try and play 
while that was going on because I was just I was just beside myself. I mean, it was so deeply moving, and you have to get used to it in two days emotionally. I and mean, it's a bit like it's probably like I would describe that piece as a sort of King Lear of the oboe concerto repertoire. I mean, nobody would have two days of rehearsals on King Lear, would they? Would no. <laughs> I, I played in the CBSO when you did it with us. Um, remember it very well. I think we did it in Snake Maltings. I, I'm so glad you were there for that. Because sometimes when you look back, there are moments when nothing was said, but you just knew that that was a sort of inside your own mind and your own life. That was a landmark moment. And it's partly because Sakari is one of the most, if not the single most generous partner on the podium mm. that until that point that I'd ever, I'd ever worked with. And that he understood that piece immediately and, yeah. and, and with my encouragement, because I'd, I'd done it before, with my encouragement, he, he brought it to very vivid life. And then, of course, going to, going to Albrecht, you know, I mean, just stepping into the maltings, you just get, you know, you have to play well because you think that Britain might hear it. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very true. I conducted the Young Person's Guide in there with that orchestra and I was frightened to death. And a piece that I've conducted many times before and since, but doing it in that room was just simply frightening. He's in the water totally listening agree. somewhere. I think if I get I the tempo wrong, there'll be, there'll be people from Snape tapping me on the shoulder afterwards saying, Ben would never have done it that fast. <laughs> well, yes. they probably would. But it's not even them that worry me very much. It's the, It's that that baker's oven in the side of the wall where you used you know he used to sit yes and sometimes right. even though it's locked you look in and you see movement <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree about about young person's guy because I, I was lucky enough to conduct that there too and it was it's it's a big noise in that building isn't it <laughs> yeah it is yeah yeah but that, that i remember when john came up on stage because john is is a man of comparatively few words john woolrich um and the words always mean something and he just he just took me by the hand and he didn't say anything and he always says oh well done or something yeah. like that but it was just like wow I, i'm so lovely that you were there for that because it was yeah. it was for me really special what was so wonderful about doing it with the cbso as well was that the three oboes included karen o'connor who was mm. somebody i was extremely fond of and and respect and deeply respected and um that they were so committed to the whole thing about being standing on stage. Whereas the BBC Symphony Oboes at the time, well, there was one kind of ringleader who sadly no longer with us, had actually held the orchestra to blackmail the orchestra <laughs> for more money and said they wouldn't stand, uh, they wouldn't stand on the stage unless they got paid more. And um, the day of the concert and, uh, and actually basically refused to even do it from the front of the stage to start with and oh I had this God. horrendous phone call from John just head in hands about how could they do this to me and in mm. the end they sat on the stage at the Albert Hall but it was so strange because I was standing and then oh it was but I mean I think the BBC Symphony Orchestra who are now one of my most favorite partners one of my most beloved partners I think they've they've managed to change the mentality there from some somewhat basically composers would be quite scared to go in there and now I think composers feel really supported by the BBC I mean I'm sure it's a scary thing for a composer being played by the BBC Symphony because they're so good 
but I've seen them be really, really warm. And, and they, that's a long time ago, but it was, it was a pretty horrible experience. So doing it in Birmingham again was, was and doing it in the Maltings was, yes, a dream. It is funny how the Ghost of Britain and Piers have, have something to say in the, in the music making there, isn't it? Yeah. I always find that, there's a, that, that you're required, and I don't know where it comes from, nobody said anything, but you're required to do more than your very best there. I'm going to stick with the BBC because you made your debut as a conductor at the proms in 2004. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then since then have gone on to form something called Triorca, which is for yeah. young musicians from Serbia, Germany and the UK. Now, yeah. two things. Why is it called Triorca and why those three countries? Because I've been racking my brains to try and work out what the link is between the three, <laughs> but I can't. So uh, I th I'd ask the person himself. Okay, well, brilliant, yes. Well, um, this actually started from me doing some work with the Norfolk Youth Orchestra. And I was, uh, I had a wonderful experience working with them. And there's just such utterly lovely young people. Um, I have a, a photograph I, I keep here from, I think it's really quite a long time ago, but they're just, oh, they're so sweet, the kids from up there. And um, we did a residential course and we did Dvorak 8 and it was, and, and I did a few other projects. We did Maxwell Davis Orkney Wedding and Sunrise as well with, a, mm. with an incredible piper in full regalia. Did that, have you ever done that with Evelyn Glennie? That's great fun as well, because she does no. that as one of her part. It's great thing. If you've got Evelyn doing a concerto, mm. get her to do the Max Orkney Wedding and such, because she has her own tartan. Oh, I didn't know that she played <laughs> the bagpipes, so, oh yes. wow. Oh yes. It's a fabulous thing. Which the, it does. It is the Evelyn Glennie show. It's a, it's a piece I absolutely love. I've done it once. I, I did it with BBC Concert oh. Orchestra uh, at Maida Vale, and uh, did all you know, rehearsed it and whatever else. Rehearsed the drunk scene, and they they played yes. it a lot. And 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 then um, actually one of the guys who works on the staff there, I kind of something to do with the stage management or whatever. He was going to blow the pipes, and when he came in in the rehearsal, I, I mean. I have to say publicly, I'm not a fan of the bagpipes at all. But when he came into the room and started walking down the middle of the aisle of Maidaville Studio One, the hairs went up to the back of my neck. I thought, oh I, my God, what a piece this is. Yeah. I know. It's just, it's that mixture of professional symphony orchestra and that raw, absolute mm. outdoor thing of the bagpipes. I mean, it, I think that's a totally brilliant piece, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so... Anyway, so we did, yeah, we did that as well. We had a great time. And then there was a, 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 a this is exactly where Trioka comes from. It's to do with the twinning organizations. Ah, so right. there's, um, there's a town in, in Northern Germany, which, which I, I've currently forgotten the name of, but it's in, on the Rhine. And um, there's a town in Serbia, Novi Sad, and they're all twinned with Norwich. Mm. And the twinning organization happened to include the, 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 the literal twinning organization in, in Norfolk, it included some real music freaks. And they said, why don't we get some young people from these three areas together, from the Rhineland, from, from Serbia, and from, from Norfolk, and get to make an orchestra together? And uh, why don't you come conduct it? So I said, well, that's absolutely amazing idea. And so we, we did a first project and we did Shostakovich Five. Mm. which is an absolutely brilliant piece to play with young people because the yes. whole 
political when they understand the political background to it and how he managed to say what he did but hide it inside what it sounds like (laughs) i have to i have to jump in and tell you a story about doing that exact piece because you've just um yeah the same age they were at birmingham school symphony orchestra they were up to 18 years old and we went on tour to estonia and before we did the i think the second or third performance of that piece on that tour we went on a day trip to the prison in Tallinn that the communists oh, used when they when the Russians were were in charge of Estonia. And I tell you what, that evening that piece just took off. Um, I bet it did. It was I so moving. It, it was it was unbelievable, absolutely, because the, you could hear pennies dropping as we were walking around these cell blocks oh, in these yeah. kids' brains, thinking, "Oh right, that's what that piece is about." And so, yeah, you're right. Well, I, had to, I had to butt in because you're so right. They they get it. No. Yeah. But they really do. And of mm. course, Novi Sad um, in Serbia, which is probably, I don't know whether it's the second city, but it's a, it's a big city, has, has suffered the most terrible things in the last, in the last decades. Um, of course, the Balkan War uh, meant, and, and Milosevic's uh, um, betrayal of, 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 of people, his monstrous behavior, mm. um, led to terrible um, deprivation. And Novi Sad was under siege. And then the United Nations and NATO uh, agreed to bomb a petrochemical works in the city and to bomb all the bridges so over the Danube, which, which runs through the city, so that the, the, um, the militant forces couldn't easily traverse the Danube. But the trouble is that that bombing put petrochemical and, and I think other sorts of toxins from the actual bombs into the water table, which is quite high there. Mm. And the average age of death is at least 15 or more years younger than a, than an equi- equivalent European country. Blimey. So um, the Serbians, I think the Serbians have, have really been through it. And I'm, I'm extremely fond of that country. Mm. Of course, when Brexit happened and our project was going on, you'd got three very interesting countries because you got one that had just had nominally voted probably their grandparents maybe had voted to leave the eu Mm. one in germany at the center of the eu and serbia who are really desperate and actually quite deserve to be members of the eu so Mm. it was very interesting place to have political discussions well sympathizing really and just just i mean i remember the first time we met just after the brexit vote which was for me so shocking and I, we were doing the, the sea interludes, Peter Grimes, sea, uh, from Peter Grimes, Britain. And, and I, I introduced it in German, saying that this, the beginning of this piece is written about the very east of England looking over to Central Europe, mm. which is where I feel Britain as a country belongs. Um, this is my personal opinion. I don't mm. force my opinions on anybody else. You can be pro or, or anti-Brexit, and I still love you. Um, and uh, well, I've got too many. I mean, I've not got that many Brexity friends, but I've got some, and I, I've made an effort to make sure I still love them. Yeah. And of course, what happened was that the, the whole audience just literally rose to their feet. And I, just to see the hurt in mm. people's faces with Britain's rejection of Europe has been. I mean, also because I'm a professor in Germany, so I. And I actually now have German citizenship, which is a huge privilege. And I feel mm. very, very, very honoured to have it, as well as British citizenship. I just managed to squeeze in there by the end of January. So, yes. So basically, it's, it's a three-country youth orchestra, which meet 
um, normally once, sometimes twice a year. And we have extended residential courses and we try to play very wide repertoire. There's a fantastic young British composer called Xiaoxian Qi, who's become an extremely eminent film composer, who we, um, who we played a piece by him um, in our, one of our first concerts. And we've been playing a very broad repertoire as well. But it's, what's lovely is that we've not just kicked people out when they reach the age of anything like 24, 25. We've kept, allowed people to come back. So there's different tiers of ages. The older ones, we've, we've, we've encouraged them to take a part in the planning and the programming to an extent as well. Um, and they, they, they're able to have uh, sort of forums and discussions, political discussions themselves. And it's amazing to see. I mean, I, I have, you know how people used to say, quiet, the adults are talking. Yeah. Uh, I, right now, I think that's got to be, you guys, shush, young people are talking. Yeah. Because yeah. it seems to me that in everything that we're doing, and, every, and this pandemic situation, that the young people, my children's ages, and they're 26 and 24, are the ones from which I've learned most in the last few months particularly from my oldest child, who is um, trans and mm. uh, incredibly active in protecting black people, black and Asian yeah. and um, different minorities from, from racism and finding ways of identifying microaggression and, and hidden racism, which I, I find very hard to do because it's entrenched in, in my whole background. It's just... Um, I do my best to, to be open about it. But it's fascinating to see how those young people are so brilliantly uh, astute. And so, I'm, I mean, when I'm working with my, my own class in Germany, who age from probably the age of maybe 19 to perhaps 27, something like that, it's exactly that age group of my own children. It's really interesting just to keep quiet and let them and, and listen to them talk. We've, we've got to learn. We've got to learn from these young people right now. They seem to know a lot more than we do. <laughs> I ask every conductor this, Mick. When you come to learn a new score, do you have a system? Mm. Uh, are you a marker-upper of scores like I am with many coloured yeah. pencils? Or do mm -hmm. you just leave it blank? Um, do you sit at the piano because you play the piano as well? Um, yeah, yeah. How do yeah. you go about it? Um, yes, I use the piano, and I am a, I am a multicolour markerer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have to say that just another of the people who who I learned a huge amount from from watching was Oliver Nussen. Yes. Um, yeah. And I was very very lucky to be for many years actually um, a coach on his contemporary music performance and composition course at Aldborough, which was a two week course in the summer. And, um, he, he actually encouraged me to conduct there as well. I remember doing soldier's tale with him there. And there was a lot of very famous composers in the audience too, <laughs> all of whom had their own ideas about how it should go, what the speeds were. Well, Stravinsky said this and that, but he recorded like, sound like, yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ollie's I, I loved, Ollie's left hand, the way he could, he could flick his fingers out as if it had been given a small electric shock. Mm. And I, when I'm doing new scores, um, to, to show a subdivision with the left hand in that way, I find people find it very reassuring. So, and he, because he has such huge hands as well, 
Mm. There was that way in which he could always show, he loved to show the inside of beef, didn't he? Yes, Without he did. ever yeah. making it heavy, you know? So it always felt like he was, he was, he was giving a little lightning bolt. Mm. Almost as if somebody plugged him into the mains with a, I'm just doing it with my left hand right now, mm. remembering it. Um, but that was, and then see him, seeing him at the end of his life con conduct things like Brahms or the Scriabin poem de Stars. I mean, just amazing to see the clarity in what he did. Yes. Fascinating. His scores were incredibly neatly marked up. I once saw his score to mm. um, Miraculous Mandarin, Bartok. Oh, really? um, wow. And we, we played it for him. I remember it very mm. well in Birmingham. And I saw the score and he was conducting off a miniature score, which firstly for that piece is just amazing. So <laughs> yeah. it must have purely been so that it, it was there purely for reference. I'm sure he probably knew from yeah. memory. But it was so neatly marked up. And I think there yes. were colours in there as well. But I remember thinking, yes. if I ever do this, I'm going to make sure my scores are as neatly marked up as that um, well my mine are not mine are really not neatly marked up but they are they are marked up in colors and i use pencil for just aids memoir sometimes if there's a repetitive pattern to yeah. find the overall shape so that i don't do the wrong number of beats or something um and you know if it's got three three two three two three yeah. then i'll just i'll write those numbers but the uh dynamics are in in red um speeds are in green yeah purple and things have different they all have different um purposes yes. um i don't i don't do it to the extent ollie did because i i think sometimes it was that was the way he learned to score by looking at it and marking things in mm. um and for me the learning of the score is is about score reading it on the piano to an extent i try to avoid listening to recordings of pieces i'm working on sometimes it's useful if it's something hard and new um it's a wonderful piece by Magnus Limbea mm -hmm. um, for just the winds and brass of the orchestra that I did recently in, in, oh, in Finland. The Grand Duo. Is that what's, yes, that's it. Yeah, it? fantastic piece. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, and there's the metric modulations. I have a, a way of marking it. So that was good to listen to a recording of that because he said, he told me, if you listen to this recording, it's done well and it was Asa Pekka, so I knew it was, mm -hmm. it was done well. Although Asa Pekka's not, I'm a great fan of his, but he's not at all averse to taking liberties. <laughs> you noticed that about him it's amazing i remember doing symphony of psalms with him once and it was really exciting i mean yeah. it was absolutely ripping and it fitted the performance we were giving very well but it wasn't in any way what stravinsky had asked for. <laughs> but i don't care you know sometimes <laughs> oh, somebody, exactly. just, I, I was very open to it it was it was yeah. very exciting nick it's 10 questions time and as usual i will start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Okay. Noise I love is the double bass. Oh. <laughs> because the, the double bass is, for me, uh, the way that you make a sound with an orchestra. Mm. If you get the right balance between basses and cellos, you know this very well, Mr. Yeah. Steele. Yeah. The right balance between basses and cellos, you can make everything glow. Yes. Um, and I think it's it's a most wonderful instrument. It's difficult to listen to soloistically, depending on who's playing it. It can be fantastic, but I just love to show the double basses that I love them when, when I'm working. They appreciate it. I was I've been they told. Do. Yeah, I've been told often. And they I, appreciate it's it. interesting hearing about how much they like when older conductors sometimes when they're losing their hearing a tiny bit. They keep asking them to play more and more and more, and they 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 learn to look as though they're playing more, but actually make the same sound. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Oh, what's what sound do I hate? I find it very hard to cope with the piccolo and the E flat clarinet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be absolutely thrilling and in in great hands. But I just remember, I mean, uh, Joy is an absolutely superb E flat clarinet player. Whenever she went into the Philharmonia, they they'd say to her, "Oh, somebody thinks the E flat clarinet's a proper instrument." Then. But I just remember the children leaving home when she started practicing Messiaen on it or something like that. <laughs> I do find that the, the, the piccolo and the E flat difficult to deal with at close range. Yeah. I don't really hate any any sound or maybe the noise of 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 uh, very polluting traffic. Perhaps that's what I hate most. <laughs> I remember. I have to tell you this little story. I not long joined the CBSO, and we were doing Marla Three, and there's a bit at the end of the development of the first movement of Marla Three where all of the flute players go to piccolo and they play a tube and there are four piccolos. And I was sitting on the back desk of the second violins, which in the Symphony Hall, Birmingham, means that you're on the same riser and basically at the end of four in my left ear was the next thing the four piccolo sound was hitting and in this rehearsal it happened uh they played it and i stopped and put my finger in my ear and, and i caught simon rattle's eye who was conducting and he just nodded <laughs> he just nodded and say look it's fine you just stop playing it's fine it's absolutely fine and, and actually that. during my time at the back often if it was a piece i didn't know um andrew lane the piccolo player would tap me on the shoulder and say you might want to just duck a bit, and it, I thought it could be standard rep. I didn't know, or or a new piece. You know, he he could see what was coming because he knew that sitting in close proximity to the piccolo is one of the most dangerous places for your hearing on the stage. Um, yeah, I've I've got yeah. a young a young friend who's in his early twenties who's who's damaged his hearing just from practicing the piccolo already. Mm. And it's been very, very depressing for him, but he's mm. uh, he's healing and it's getting luckily he's bounced back from it. But did you know this whole thing about the 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 level of sounds and things? We've got to take it quite seriously, I think. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, I would make a lovely breakfast and then I would meditate. For me, meditation is really wonderful part of my life, and it's been very interesting just recently to reconnect with it on a very regular basis i've been working a little bit with a guy called the breath guy uh, who does lovely workshops and interesting for me to use the breath a little bit um mm. it, it, away from the oboe um then i lovely walk down by the river here in St. Neitz. um it's just gorgeous that i mean if you can do it and feel safe that's great maybe go to the seaside for a few hours you get to Aldborough and go mm. and scramble up and down the shingle and feel the something I always do when I go to anywhere where there is sea as I put my feet in feet in the sea so I, I love doing that cooking oh love to cook now um I've always enjoyed cooking but now I've got a bit better at it and I bought a magi mix so I use my magi mix and I would definitely start drinking at lunchtime if I got 24 hours free <laughs> <laughs> who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear I feel it has to be Toscanini because there is just something so utterly electric about what he does. And that way, I mean, I'm sure it's perhaps fear <laughs> from the players, <laughs> but I've, everything I've read and understood, and I've, it's hard to find lots of footage of him, but um, for everything I've read and understood uh, and listened to, 
he was harder on himself than on anybody else mm. um and that that appeals to me but it, it's just this sheer brilliance of of what he seems to be able to do to make it for me storytelling and 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 living the line as it goes by living it in real time and watching it as it as it develops as you see the architecture go from one place to another and being exactly where that is i think he does that as well as anybody does who would be your favorite current conductor or conductors well i think it, it, my my number one at the moment has to be simon rattle because i so admire what he stands for as well as what he does mm. so for instance when he went to to berlin he um against the the real wishes of, of the players he instigated a major education department and brought the best people from here and this this country leads the world in improvised style music education in project form mm. um, and working in a way that goes from the players out to the community R right now he has to be at the front of a major call to get music education back on the curriculum and I know he's I know he's doing it, and there are other others of us uh, doing it too. But I know I know that that is deep in his heart, um, and I I just think that him standing up for what he believes in, and also when you see him, you know he's the he is a great maestro, and he he can be fiery or whatever, impatient probably at times, but he's so warm and approachable by even by people, you know, in his little in his little sweater after a rehearsal in the Philharmonic Hall in Berlin, people are coming up to him and they can't believe that they can just talk to him because mm. they've still got the, this sort of distance between the conductor and their minds in Germany. So I would say, Simon, I, I very much enjoy Susanna Malky's conducting. I've never worked with her, but I think she's absolutely terrific. And I, I'm so excited to see that she's doing as well as she is. Um, I also have had some great experiences with Sean Edwards uh, who's now a great teacher as well and Sean we did Tippet King Priam a couple of years ago um, of course she with her, her late husband she was very close to to Tippet and, and knows a lot about her and that was an absolutely brilliant performance and she's got a way of of, of again energizing things from within I, it's so sad that I can't say living conductor includes Maris Janssons yes that for me is is such I mean, he gave a lot during his career and with all that terrible ill heart health that mm. he continued to be so active and so committed. Um, he was almost like a machine in a way, the way he would, he would work. And this sort of grit to keep doing it when you're not well uh, yeah. and when your father's already died of it and to, to keep being so... I mean, you just had to have one look at his wife's face to see if you were going to talk to him after a rehearsal there was this sort of look which said if you're too long i'm cutting you off <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, so that's very sad to me i can't say that he exists in our, our list of living conductors it was marla one i saw him do in london and the most extraordinary thing about it well first of all the shape of the first movement was just perfect but it was the in the uh, the slow movement, how the way he made the oboes play that melody, mm. and it, it preempted the whole idea of of the Holocaust. It, it, 
it just was as Jewish as anything you could imagine. It was a completely, and it was so sad, even though the, you know, the, the, the history of attacks on Jews goes back centuries and centuries. Mm. But the fact that you could look at it through that prism of when that piece was written and think about what came afterwards. And, and all of these things came into my mind in one flash while he was conducting it. And I was very, very privileged to be on the jury of the Royal Philharmonic Society Conductor Award that year. And I said, at the first meeting, I said, in my opinion, there is one performance and even one moment in one performance which deserves by itself this award. And actually, mm. Geoffrey Norris, the critic, was there uh, on, that, on that committee as well. And, he's, and he, he agreed with me and actually put it very erudically. And it was on that occasion that Janssons did win the Royal Philharmonic Society's Conductor of the Year Award. <laughs> I was very proud of that. Yeah. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, it's funny to call it hard, but because in fact it was more to do with it being a massive experience. Mm. And I mentioned it before, it was Garontius, Algar yeah. Garontius. And I think it's the, the fact that it's, it's such a fascinating piece um, because it, it posts the idea of, of an answer to what comes next, mm. which is one of the biggest questions that a human being ever asks. When you're building up to a performance of Gerontius, then you've got, to, you've got to enter into that whole thing. So you've got to kind of decide for yourself what you, it makes you think, what do you, what do you think about it? Mm. And so I did, I did actually, I did spend some time thinking about fateful thoughts and stuff like that. <laughs> but in the end, actually just handling, there's another one of those really quite massive accelerandos in it in the, in the second yes. part. Um, and it's, it's very hard to pace that exactly right. So that it arrives at the right place with those huge forces. Um, and, and it keeps getting, it keeps the sheep actually beating slower beats because it, it's compound of multiple beats. Mm. Um, so to keep it going without showing the same pulse is, is hard, very hard, I think. But I have to say, it's also the thing that of all the pieces I've ever conducted that stayed with me for the for longest. I don't think I was over it for six weeks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it was. It, it is a physical thing, but also when you're dealing with uh, with um, with non-professional players, it, it's it, it's actually possible to do really great forms because they they've got a bit of life experience and they know what the piece is about and you're and they're talking about it and they're able to sort of share thoughts and experiences with you. Mm. Um, the choir choir conducting is not something I've done very much of, but gosh, that's a skill, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. It's quite something. Yeah, I enjoyed um, it though. It's great. It's that that game you play of judging how far behind the beat the choir are going to sing compared to how far behind the beat the orchestra are playing. Um, yes, sometimes it's, it's having also, to switch in the middle of a bar from uh, right. I'm right. Now, well, now working with the orchestra. Now I'm going to the choir. Um, it's also about judging how hard you can be in, in, because I took separate rehearsals for them as well, how hard you can be, how demanding you can be and actually get away with it without, before they start calling you a jumped up little upstart or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about Leicester is that it's the first northern city they describe it. So they'll always greet you with a, you're all right. They'll always yeah. greet you with that. And, they'll, and then they'll actually always call a spade a spade, which is something I love. And I work in Leicester a lot. I, I've run a festival there. For many many years and it's it's a great city 
um, but they do call it as they see it. Yeah. <laughs> when travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? My iPad, because it's the way I keep in touch with home, with, mm. with uh, big picture. It's the way I keep in touch with my students through Zoom. It's the way that I can, I can watch, I can research, I can watch it. I mean, it's incredible to have. It's not the same as a phone because the phone's such a small screen. So when you can yeah. really see things. And, and I've had such wonderful experiences from looking at manuscripts of old scores, um, a handwritten manuscripts of Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms to an extent as well. And actually just zooming in on the handwriting, really opening the, the screen out to really look closely at the energy in the, in the, in the handwriting. I, I've, I have a friend, um, Anton Steck, who's one of the great Baroque violinists, and he's a colleague of mine in, in Trossingen in Germany. And he, he's done a um, fantastic analysis of handwriting, and he has a book in which he's used a quill to write several different versions of, of different composers' work. Um, <laughs> using different quills as a whole. I mean, seeing composers' handwriting, it's not something we get to do these days very much, no, unfortunately. Mm. And I, I, I regret it to an extent because, I mean, for instance, seeing an Ollie Nussen score is, is a way to understand the man to an mm. extent. It is. And I love it that one young composer who I'm very, very fond of and is, is written amazing music for me, Mark Simpson, Mm. Um, he's still showing me scores in handwriting as well as as well as then later in Spanish. So I love to see the, particularly him, because it's so incredibly expressive, his work. One of my regrets is not buying a coffee table book I once saw in a music shop in Lucerne, which was a hundred different composers. Was, on oh. the left-hand page was, a, was a, a big glossy picture of a page of their score, and on the right was a description of who the composer was and when the piece was written and how they might have written things. And we're just flicking through and, you know, certain composers, you know, Shostakovich, I opened a page on Shostakovich and thought, oh, Shostakovich, I know his writing. Uh, Beethoven, you know, you've see, I've seen enough facsimiles of his scores. Yes. And then I saw a page of Benjamin Britten, which was the last page, one of the last pages of the War Requiem. And then I was flicking around and then I opened this page and it looked like somebody would had an accident with a pot of ink. <laughs> Uh, and and a dog had half eaten it. Was and it Janacek? It was Janacek, correct. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was yeah. going to say, it sounds like Janacek to me. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think I would want every conductor to conduct a piece of new music in every programme they did. Not newly composed music, but a piece by a living composer. Yeah. That's what I would do, because... I think it's too easy to, it's the same as being a violinist or a pianist. You're, you're blinded by repertoire. You can just live your life in the greatest music ever written without ever looking at a, uh, a new, let alone young, let alone non-male composer. Mm. So I, I believe that the future is very interesting, actually, because I think we're going to have to change. I think we're going to have to look at things in a different way and I don't want to throw out baby with bathwater but I do think that um, we're about to enter a period in this country and I think maybe worldwide too whereby we have you know maybe another 40 percent of great composers because we've already got some great um, non-male composers coming through but mm. if there are as many good female composers as there are male 
we're literally doubling the number of great composers. So we're looking at a, a, a kind of new renaissance in a way. Mm. And, and you look at composers of different generations, you look at say Thea Musgrave, um, Judith Weir, Helen Grant, funnily enough, all Scottish. Mm. Um, <laughs> and you look at the, uh, the quality of work that the three of them were still producing. I, uh, I'm lucky enough to have good, very good friendship with Thea Musgrave. She's really one of my best friends. And she's just writing another opera with her own libretto based on Virginia Woolf's Orlando. She's 92. And the energy with which she's given, I mean, she's obsessed. I mean, I, I FaceTime her sometimes in, the, in her morning time in LA. Incredible. But that's, that's a, a career that started in the 40s. Mm. So you're looking at if we can encourage the next generation, as we are trying to do, of women composers to, to be... It was interesting to talk yesterday to Fenella Humphreys, the violinist. She said that she hardly ever gets um, female composers sending her scores to say, what do you think of this? She gets all the men composers always send her the scores, but she sort of made it clear that she wants to hear from women composers too. But that, that means we have to support them more. I think conductors should be playing everywhere, should be playing new music and should be helping to commission it too. Because they don't live by they don't live by on fresh air, they've actually got to and the, the amount of money that most composers live on is utterly shocking. Mm. There's probably a handful of composers in the world that exist on composition alone, just a handful. It's Otherwise, they're doing the conducting, they're ex, they're they're teaching, but it all gets in the way of being creators. I think. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Yes, I actually think. I hope that our wonderful manager, Sarah, will forgive us for this. I think I'd have made a damn good agent. <laughs> because, I, no. I mean, you're not talking about changing who I am. And one of the things I am is I, I love and understand other people's performances. Last night, uh, watching Sarah Connolly performing the Royal Opera House, it was just overwhelming to see the, the sheer concentration and involvement of her performance of Das Lied von der Erde mm. and it was something I mean if, if anybody said okay you know we need the who's the best mezzo you can think of and I can think of about four or five mezzos who I would be able to say well this one does this really well this one does similar things but she can do this in this different way I would be able to really help promoters and and and, and uh, orchestras and, and people and agents other agents find the right person for the right job mm. um I, and i think i can i would be able to do it without bullshitting hopefully <laughs> <laughs> which is the great art of an agent and also i think that being able to say sorry even if it's not your fault which i am rather good at doing being english um <laughs> i think that is a great art of an agent too and i did have an agent once um who, who did that a lot and it was very disarming and it mm. stopped a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will well, make sure that Sarah Bruce, our manager, um, oh. <laughs> I shall leave this in Poor so she gets Sarah. to hear it. <laughs> we love her. She's we do. Best. We love you, Sarah. <laughs> absolute best. She's the best agent I've ever had. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Okay. Well, it's very, very easy with the starter. Okay. Because it's Coquille Saint-Jacques. Which, mm -hmm. if there was, if I had to choose one food that was the only food I would ever have to eat forever, it would be that. Okay. So long as there was champagne with it. 
Um, and then it's a choice between confit de canard mm. or roast lamb. And I think probably, no, it's going to be the confit de canard because that okay. is just, oh my goodness. Um, and it would have um, British runner beans, uh, baby roast potatoes done in goose fat. And it would have, um, this is outrageous, but it would have samphire with it because I absolutely love samphire. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but goose, then, goose fat and samphire is perfectly allowed because it's your last meal. So <laughs> I know, on. I don't have to worry <laughs> about my arteries. No, exactly. Um, a dessert would have to be a meringue dish of some sort uh, with cheese before, or that gorgeous, some um, that uh, the one with the nettles, the Welsh cheese. I think it's a goat cheese and it's got nettles. Um, uh, it's green, like a wax green covering to it. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, and to wash it down would be a rosé sanier by uh, Roger Constant Le Maire, which is my, I sound like a, a complete bourgeois saying this, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually have a favourite champagne house. <laughs> I can't, I can't quite believe I'm saying this out loud. I have a favorite, and it's a, a, a biodynamic and organic champagne house in near Epernay in, in, in France. Mm. And um, it is the most, it, and it's the, the rose champagne that they do is that the, um, it, it's, it's sort of the word kind of means bruised, but it's sort of, they leave the, the, the black grapes in, in, a, in a vat for a couple of days. So they just start to, seep a little bit of color mm. and then they very gently press the juice so it's not mixing red and white grapes together which we know red and white wines together which we know yeah. gives us a headache yeah. so it's it's uh the rose sonnier it's just divine that champagne house is they're such lovely people as well there's a really nice gay couple apart to the running of it who i've got very fond of and I, I was actually lucky enough to pop in there the other day, so I may or may not have come back with a couple of bottles of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should be looking them up. And, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, that sounds like a wonderful final meal. And it's been a wonderful <laughs> chat, Nick. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Me too. And I know that we're sharing a stage again soon, doing oh, the Strauss um, oh, again. So uh, until then, I wish you all the best and thank you and... See you soon. You too. And thank you for having me. It's really a great, great pleasure to talk to you. Take care, won't you? A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I talk to a conductor who was born in the Ukraine, who is equally at home in the concert hall and the opera house. And since 2009, he has been principal conductor of the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. Until then, bye bye. bye.